Beth and I'm a psychological wellbeing practitioner from Newcastle. I just wanted to say the biggest thank you to the contributors of the Clinical Psychologist Collective book. I've enjoyed reading this so much and loved having an insight into the range of backgrounds and experiences people have prior to applying for the doctorate and it's been really interesting seeing the potential barriers to the application as well and how I can try and work around this. I really started to doubt myself and whether I was good enough to apply for the clinical psychology doctorate but this has really given me the confidence boost that I needed to give it a shot so the biggest thank you ever. Coming up today knitting is more than just a hobby yes you heard me right knitting. Join me and my guest today as we enter the fascinating world of needles and yarn where creativity intertwines with mental health. Have you ever wondered how a simple stitch can soothe the mind and uplift the soul? Every knit and purl is a thread of tranquility, where stitching is serenity. Discover how the gentle rhythm of needles can mend the mind and mend the soul one stitch at a time. Stay tuned as we explore and unravel the therapeutic benefits of knitting and the secrets behind every loop and twist. Hope you find it so useful. Hi, welcome along to the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. I am Dr. Marianne Trent and I'm a qualified clinical psychologist. I like to bring you a variety of topics in this podcast. If you've been here for any or all of the previous 116 episodes, you will know that no two episodes are the same. I love how we as qualified or even aspiring psychologists can begin to bring things that are important to us to the the way we practice and the people we serve. It's not about us, but actually, as humans, we are absolutely a really important part of the intervention. In today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Mia Hobbs, a qualified clinical psychologist and a knitting for mental well-being advocate. It's a fascinating chat and I loved it. I will look forward to catching up with you on the other side of this. Hi, Mia. Lovely to have you here on the podcast today. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So we first crossed paths on Instagram um, where you advocate the beauty and the benefit of knitting, um, which is obviously interesting from a mental health perspective, but you caught my eye because you're a clinical psychologist who's also a big fan of knitting, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. No, I've been using um, knitting more and more in my work, but I joined Instagram, I guess, for the knitting, having not thought in- there was anything on Instagram particularly for me. <laughs> back in I think 2017. I just love how varied and niche social media can be um yeah like I love it. So before we plow into knitting could we hear a little bit about you and how you got into psychology please? Sure so I um I think I knew I wanted to be a clinical psychologist about maybe most of the way through my undergraduate um, psychology degree I did a year kind of a placement year in my third year in undergrad and was working in a school with kids with autism and I was looking into educational psychology but I was more I think attracted to doing more intervention than I think maybe educational psychologists often have the opportunity to do 
And then after that, yeah, took a more kind of clinical route. And I think I did um, a couple of assistant psychologist posts before then training at UEL in London. Perfect. When um, did you qualify? I qualified in 2008. So I don't actually know how many years that is now. <laughs> That's so um, it means that you you qualified the year that I started so we had a little bit of overlap but um yes quite some years now is what yeah. I would say to that. <laughs> I think I'm about I was I think I was starting about 15 years ago something like that so you probably qualified yeah. about 15 years ago something like that lovely and you mentioned that you work with children and young people have you done that since qualifying yes so I've only I've, I see occasionally I will see an adult in private practice, but I've I've worked in the NHS from 2008 when I qualified to 2017. And that was all um, yeah with children and young people in partly in primary schools and then in kind of more generic camps. And can I ask what factors were involved in your decision to leave the NHS and that's with no barbs or kind of pressure because I've done the same myself like if that feels okay for you to answer it I'd love to know and I'm sure our, our audience would love to know too. Yeah absolutely it was a really tough decision <laughs> and it was a decision actually that like I think that was also the time that was the first time I intentionally used a knitting project <laughs> to get me through a transition in like my life I think I think I'd done it but not really thought about it intentionally before that but when I left the NHS I think the team I was working in there had been a lot of changes as most NHS teams I'd gone back after having my second child part-time and I think was struggling with being the kind of middle level of the CAMS team where we were seeing, I, you know, we were of the level that were expected to take the more uh, serious, risky clinical cases at the same time as supervising more junior members of the team and also then attending some kind of more management-y type meetings and all of that in only part time, which felt like a lot of pressure and that there was enough, just about enough time to do all the things you kind of had to do to hit all of the targets of how many clients you're seeing, you're supervising everybody, but not enough time to explore anything kind of above that in terms of like interests or CPD or that was really difficult. And I'm married to an NHS doctor <laughs> and I felt like it was not really sustainable, sadly, for our family. Um, I think it had also been winter and my kids had been sick very often um so in that sense it was a really difficult there were some things in the team that were really unhelpful and I didn't really agree with I felt quite frustrated I think and not being able to do anything about it so it, it felt like a very sad decision at the time and wasn't really one that I wanted to make and it was not done in a sensible way in the sense that um, I didn't really have private work set up beforehand. Obviously, I had a three-month notice period, so I could get things kind of a bit up and running. But I didn't really—it wasn't really a planned departure. Um, but I knew that private work was going to be more flexible for family life rather than finding another NHS job. So that was the point at which I kind of left and took a leap into the unknown. And I think, um, yeah, in terms of 
going back to the knitting side of things, I feel like being in private practice has allowed me to be a bit more kind of flexible and innovative, I suppose, in terms of exploring other interests. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Even today, a, you know, a, an aspiring journalist messaged me and said, could you help with this research? And it sounded really, really interesting. And I really wanted to do it. And so I've been like, yes, but obviously, when we're in an employed capacity, it makes that much trickier. Um, so yeah, I hear you like damn near broke my heart when I left the NHS as well. It's an organisation that I passionately believe in. And I think that it offers a really pretty impressive service in very stretched resources um, to many, many patients across the country, um, across the UK for that matter. But it's, you know, we absolutely need to be looking after that, our own well-being and the needs of our own family. And, you know, it may not be something that we do forever. Um, it may be something that we, you know, choose to stay away from forever. But, you know, we we are people first and, and psychologists second. And we've got to have good work-life balance. Yeah. And I feel like that has, you know, there are a lot of benefits, I suppose, in terms of, you know, being able to just decide that I won't miss any of my kids' assemblies or sports days or things like that. That, that you know, for me, I was able to do that at that point. Um, and that was fortunate. And yeah, and it might not be forever. Yeah, like you say, but um, I would like to think I'll go back to the NHS at some point. But yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I hear you. Like when they randomly throw in an extra music assembly at 2pm on a Friday and you're like, oh, well, I can go. But I'm acutely aware that I wouldn't be able to if I wasn't in private practice. That would be a bit more of a struggle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there just seems to be at the end of every term a whole bunch of those extra oh. things where you have oh, to show yeah. up. <laughs> we're, we're approaching the end of year six now for my eldest and there's even more kind of leaving stuff um, that happens as well. Um, so tell us about you and knitting. When did you start, first start to learn to knit? So I think I learned, I remember having some like Donald Duck knitting needles as a child and my mum was a knitter, kind of on-off knitter and she um, she would, you know, periodically you just like kind of watch her and she'd just be clicking. I remember thinking she's just clicking those needles together and it's kind of just happening by magic and I would ask to try and she'd help me and I'd make some very tight and frustrating little knitting, like a kind of the size of a mouse blanket. Um, so I think I did that a few times throughout childhood, like my kids have also done and didn't, you know, didn't stick. I was always attracted to making things with my hands. Like I would do, I don't know, Fimo. I had a cross stitch phase. I was always doing something like that. And I feel like there was a part of my brain that wanted like a project that was uh unrelated to um I don't know work or anything that mattered really just like a little creative thing oh you were an early adopter for mindfulness Mia yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> but I think I didn't really um think about it in any formal way and then when I it was actually when I started um training at UEL my mum had met somebody whose daughter had also done the clinical psychology doctorate. And this um, trainee psychologist had learnt to bricklay because she really had this strong desire to, I don't even know if she needed a brick wall, but that she had a strong desire to do something that was completely unrelated to psychology. And at that point, my mum was in a phase of knitting at that time and had, you know, shawls on the 
arm of the sofa that if you were cold so I was at her house and I just put wrapped shawl around me because I was cold and she said you could make one of those I think you should learn to knit and I said okay fine like just to kind of keep her quiet really to be honest and um so she showed me the stitches I think my hands I always feel like people's hands remember even if their brains don't a bit like when I get my clarinet out that I used to play my kind of hands can remember even though I feel like I can't read music anymore um so she showed me how to do things and before I got on the train back to London we went to John Lewis and bought some yarn and I was just about to do my first year exams at the time and I feel like it was a triangular shawl I actually still have it so it starts off with like five stitches and then gets gradually bigger and bigger and bigger and the wingspan of this thing is now you know huge like a couple of meters maybe and um it was quite good that it started small. So I could just, when I was new at knitting, just do a row was very quick. And when I was having a break in my revision, I would just do a couple of rows and then I go back to my revision. And I felt, I've always felt like it is like using a very different part of my brain <laughs> to what was required of a lot of me. It is still in my job now, but also particularly in training where you're kind of cramming <laughs> information in and you're doing a lot of thinking and analyzing and talking. And this was just a very different, I felt, part of my brain. And I feel like it kind of opens a different trap door and then different thoughts emerge if I do a bit of knitting. So often now I'll bring some knitting with me to my face-to-face -face clinic. And before somebody comes into the room, I just sit for five minutes and get my knitting out. And then I think, oh, maybe I'll just ask them about this thing or something new will come to me <laughs> that I hadn't thought about and wouldn't have thought about if I was deliberately trying to think about it, I think. So that was when I started. Yeah. And actually, as it happens, a couple of other girls on my training course had also, so some of them say I taught them to knit, which may, might, may or may not be true. I remember my friend Rachel, her grandma had taught her to knit and she, I don't know, had some knitting at home. So a few of us used to randomly like knit a bit together or talk a bit about it so that kind of I think fanned the flame a little bit but it, it was just something I did in revision breaks quietly at home and I don't think I realized how helpful it was for my kind of mental well-being until much later really but that was where it started. I love that and I love the idea of of the other trainee suddenly being like I need to build a brick wall. <laughs> funny I guess I don't exactly. know who this person is and whether they have this brick wall that's actively in the way in their garden I like to think they do <laughs> yeah because I guess a lot often a lot of the work we do you don't necessarily get that tangible result do you you might get a felt sense of actually the importance of what we do but so maybe there's something around you know I need to build a brick wall I want to knit a jumper like I need to do something um but I love the idea that you can kind of use it as a way of decompressing from therapy sessions but also kind of building your mind up for therapy sessions as well and so that becomes kind of part of the the knitted products doesn't it that all of those you know, I think it's why it's so evocative you know I remember still going to see the Bayer Tapestry um, mm. on my school trip when I was in year seven so I was like 11 um, but the idea that all of the people and all of the hours and the the hands and the work and the the dedication that went into creating that and I think that's what the real beauty of handmade is. Um, when I had my firstborn um, 
one of my friends who was actually a clinical psychologist um, gave me some beautiful blankets and kind of knitted teddies and things. And it's just it's just a gift that is really tricky to put into words how powerful that is, because you need to pre-order that, don't you? You know, you can't just suddenly <laughs> have that. It's it's being held in mind and somebody choosing to mindfully holding you hold you in mind even whilst they're doing the planning even whilst they're going to the to the to the wool shop you know and then every time they're knitting that's, that's really lovely yeah and I think when you do it you re- you know you realize just how many hours of um somebody's free time they've spent uh doing this thing or you know choosing the right color or the right yarn or you know and I think that was one of the things that really um, made me realise how beneficial it was um, and how you could use it very intentionally it was when I was um, part of my last uh, NHS job in the CAMS team. There was a colleague of mine who was having twins and they were very special babies because they were following her breast cancer. And she was a very, you know, very big character and a loved member of the team. and we um lots of people came up to me because they knew I knitted and they said oh I'd really like to knit something for these babies could you help me do something and I was thinking actually I'm not sure these poor babies need like 15 half finished cardigans (laughs) or um and you know they grow so quickly don't they newborns that um you could put in a lot of effort and make something they would only wear for five minutes so I said look why don't I buy some yarn and we'll all we can knit squares And I had actually as a trainee, as I was a knitter and in my last placement, um, all of the team there had made me this amazing um, like patchwork cushion and they'd sewn it all together. And each of the members of the team had knitted a bit of this patchwork cushion. And some of them were, you know, quite dodgy knitters and they'd taken photographic evidence to show that even the consultant psychiatrist had done some knitting and -and so-and-so had been tempted to take it home and get his wife to do it, but they'd actually persuaded him he could learn to knit. And it was such an amazing gift. I've still got it now. And um, yeah, so that was what inspired me. So I didn't make anyone join in, but lots of, well, one person maybe. Um, he was a very good friend of the person whose babies they were. Lots of people came together and I, so there were many people who'd done a bit of knitting before, but lots of people who hadn't. And we all kind of sat together at lunchtime. And even if it was like 10, 15 minutes, people put their work down. They sat in the staff room, not at their desks and did a bit of knitting and it opened up different conversations and uh, people had a bit of non-working time and really noticed how, it made a big difference to team morale. So I think that was, you know, what made me think about more seriously, could I actually use it as part of my therapy work, really? Oh, that's just so lovely. And that brought a little tear to my eye, the idea that everybody in the team knitted you a square. I know. That's really, (laughs) really powerful, really lovely. And just really, really nice. Do you ever use that in session with clients? Do you ever kind of knit together and then the client takes away the work with them so that they can kind of hold that in mind as a tangible product of the work they've done with you yes I have done that um and have recently finished like a therapy blanket that I'm making with a client at the moment where we've both knitted squares and put them together um and sometimes we do a bit of knitting as part of you know an engagement strategy and then eventually once they feel comfortable talking 
their knitting needles don't come out so often. Um, but yeah, it's been, you know, lovely. I've done it a few times actually in different workplaces where we've made a blanket together and that has felt nice when it's had a purpose, I think. Um, yeah, and some people I've taught them how to knit or maybe reminded them and then they've gone away and it's been a, a kind of almost like a transitional object, but something that they've needed to hold on to through therapy sessions like to keep them going until the next week or over a break, for example, or to make something for a significant person in their life to kind of, um, yeah, help them feel close to them. Also, I think a lot of us as knitters were taught by family members and it helps us feel closer to other people, you know, maybe who aren't with us anymore. So I think there's lots of ways in which I found it's been um yeah really helpful and I've also um started having these conversations on my own podcast with people about why they knit and how it benefits their mental health and people have shared some amazing stories because I think there's just so much anecdotal evidence that knitting can be hugely beneficial to your mental health yeah just before we hit record you were trying to teach me to knit and it it did immediately transport me to being cozied up in an armchair at my granny's house because mm. she was an avid knitter um and she only really seemed to stop as her cancer advanced unfortunately but she always just had a knitting bag full of knitting ne needles and you know projects and and balls of wool and I think those are almost really nice things to pass down the generation as well aren't they so that you can kind of finish someone's knitting and I, I'm, I'm kind of a bit sad now that I didn't think to do that um, I don't mm. know where they are now um, but yeah like it's really powerful isn't it and you know that idea that maybe my fingers do remember I just need to I need to have some help with casting on that's where I was struggling Mia <laughs> yeah my neighbor and there's actually, um, has... no there's actually an amazing um organization now they're based in the US but they've got knitters all over the world um called Loose Ends who were based around that exact um issue of a loved one no longer being able to knit or not being around anymore and having an unfinished project so now they have uh, they match projects with finishers who volunteer their kind of skills so you can volunteer for them and say I can do I don't know knitting and crochet and they find a project that somebody's been left with who doesn't knit and then um, people finish them and it's it was amazing to speak to them for my podcast about you know the I had thought about how nice it would be for the person who had who was grieving to have this item finished. Maybe it was a teddy bear for their the grandchild or something like that. But what I hadn't thought about was the um, that lots of the people who'd applied to be finishers were actually also people who'd lost somebody through grief or wanted to do something nice for another person. So it was an amazing project, but. Oh, that's that's got repair shop written all over it, hasn't yeah. it? I don't know if you watched that, <laughs> yes. but that would make a fantastic series. You should pitch that as a as a TV <laughs> idea because Davina McCall could present that surely. <laughs> Claudia Wilkinson with her love of knitwear, like yeah. <laughs> that's that's got legs. Kirsty, she could do it. She loves a bit of knitting, doesn't she? That's got yeah. that's got legs. That has that's a really lovely idea, and it was making me think about a fantastic rainbow bright jumper that my granny knitted me, and she also knitted me a, a, a My Little Pony jumper, but I only ever got to wear it once or twice because I left it on holiday. Oh, no. Like all of those hours, I never got it back, and you know, it's sad. Um, but I guess I really enjoyed it when I wore it, but 
yeah yeah sad times yeah. sad times it's, it's tough to lose hand knitted items yeah I nearly lost a um I just finished knitting this cardigan and I'd not been knitting it was quite a long time of me being a knitter before I knitted garments and I'd knitted this cardigan and was really proud of it it was one of the first you know like wearable like clothes I'd made and then it ended up in a bag that was left on a bus in from like Barcelona airport um I was reunited with it but um yeah that was quite sad when I thought I'd lost it <laughs> for a few oh, days I, I think it's gone that. I love that you got it back how do you even begin to knit a jumper is it like is it stitched together or is it like one they can be thing uh they can be stitched together I can't quite tell from you look I think your cardigan is pieced is it yeah um but so for example this jumper I'm wearing now is cast on at the neckline and knitted in the round and then is knitted kind of down to the shoulders and then you put the sleeves on hold and then knit down the torso so it's knitted in kind of three tubes basically um so usually I prefer to knit them kind of all in one piece because you can try them on as you go so then you know <laughs> if it's long enough or if it fits okay that's easier <laughs> oh that is just so clever so clever how has the cost of living crisis affected the knitting community has yarn prices shot through the roof or are they fairly consistent I think with yarn um there is like the knitting is not a cheap way of getting clothes the way I see it is that it's kind of a hobby that I'm going to knit anyway. I happen to end result in an end product, which is also wearable for me, which is almost a bonus because I think I knit 90% of why I knit is for the process rather than for the outcome. But what surprised me actually about knitting was the um, my how it's changed my, I don't know if the word is body image or self-concept or kind of uh, relationship with clothing as a result of being somebody who can make their own clothes um, but I think you can buy yarn in a pound shop and you can buy yarn that is hand dyed and um, super expensive but um, yeah so I think you they can there's something there for every budget but I guess like everything probably most things have got more expensive more expensive recently yeah. thank you and in terms of research I've sort of got some vague, vague fact rattling around at the back of my brain about people who are using their brains in certain ways are more are less likely to develop certain kind of degenerative conditions. But I don't know if I've made that up. Is there anything around knitting that you're aware of that's kind of in that realm of kind of the actual functional kind of benefits for our brain? So I suppose the research I've more looked into is more on a mental health angle so in terms of the research about it being beneficial for our mental health rather than um to do with thinking about degenerative conditions but I guess generally I guess the research in that vein is that using you know your brain uh, or using different skills is helpful for retaining them um, and I guess it depends probably how you you're using your knitting because I guess one of the great things I think about knitting is that you you and I could need very different things from knitting <laughs> and it could offer us both so if what you wanted was something very simple to do while you're watching t telly to relax where you don't really have to think about it but your hands are moving or you wanted something to do during 
I don't know, a really long Zoom training where you just have to sit and listen and it helps you focus. It would certainly help me focus if I was sitting and listening to something. Um, you could do that. Whereas if you wanted something to, I call it active relaxation. So you want something to completely absorb your brain so that you actually can't think about something else, something that's not happening. You can't think about what you're making for dinner tomorrow or the last client you saw or any of those things. You could have that. So I tend to have projects in both camps on the needles at all times. So I've got something super simple I can do while I'm, for example, listening to my kids read or I can whip it out in the dentist waiting room. And then I've got something really complicated <laughs> that absorbs all of my brain and means I can only think about that, actually. And I can't also think about something else at the same time. So um, I think in terms of uh, the, the research, there's certainly research that it can help with things like um, ruminative thoughts. All of the research is quite, you know, it's hard to get research funded when it's about knitting. And Betson Corkill, who was basically the authority on therapeutic knitting, used to have to call it a, I can't remember what she called it, a rhythmical bilateral psychosocial intervention. And everybody wanted to know about it. And if she said the K word, as she called it, everybody turned off and called her the mad knitting lady. So, um, but it's very like... Um, I interviewed an oncology nurse who'd done a study about um, compassion fatigue using knitting with um, oncology nurses. And she said, you know, her point was it's such low hanging fruit. Like it's such a cheap, easy and accessible intervention to offer that, you know, what could possibly, you know, it's highly unlikely to be harmful in any way. Um, what could possibly be the problem with it? But there's big there's you know being a big study that's um qualitative i think that was 3000 knitters completed the study about i think they completed measures of depression and anxiety and it was kind of demonstrating the more you knit the more likely it is to have benefits for your mental health but you know as part of my podcast people have told me some amazing stories about things like um reducing physical pain people with chronic illness um lots of people using it to kind of overcome bereavement. I guess we can also borrow research from things like EMDR because I guess it is a bilateral, a form of bilateral stimulation. And I think those of us who do it every day are probably doing a bit of that stuff that EMDR does just with the events of our daily lives um, every day. Absolutely, absolutely. So we we have mainly mental health professionals that listen to the podcast, but sometimes there are people who are just really interested in mental health. So if I just briefly say what bilateral is. So bilateral is when we're using both sides of our brain. So for example, when I move my left arm here, it's my right side of my brain that's doing that. And when I use my right arm, it's the left side of my brain. So when we're doing things like tapping or knitting or drumming or even walking, or therapies such as EMDR, we're activating both sides of those brains. So I love, I love that idea for knitting. I think the only drawback I can think about really is if you were going to do that in a forensic setting is giving yeah. people potentially quite sharp, pointy sticks. But um, yeah, like, you know, what's the danger? You know, is you're not going to harm someone by knitting. No, I think the main thing I found, because I've taught lots of people to knit, I've done some therapeutic knitting groups in schools and run retreats. And I think the main um, challenge, I suppose, is when people are already in a period of their life where they're struggling, let's say they were experiencing low mood, then learning a new thing that might potentially be a bit tricky and frustrating, it might be just too hard. 
actually in that moment of their life, they might not uh, be able to cope with the kind of setbacks of it's not going to be that easy. It might be too frustrating. And that's why I guess when I talk about knitting, I'm not advocating everybody starts to knit. You know, when I mention it in therapy, I mention kind of I talk a bit about knitting and how I use knitting. And I say, have you got any interest in knitting? And when people say no, I then don't talk about knitting anymore. But we think about, is there anything in your life that maybe you've done before, maybe feels familiar, maybe you did it in childhood or when you were younger? Because often when I see teenagers, they've kind of given up more creative hobbies that they used to do as a younger child. Because I guess we we offer those things to young children all the time. And then I guess we just stop when people get older. So often people can think about something that they've done before that uses a similar type of skill, something that's a bit creative or it focuses on using their hands. Like it could be Lego or it could be I've got somebody who uses diamond painting who I'm working with at the moment. And um, it could be, yeah, it could be painting, colouring, um, cooking, cake decorating. Um, you know, there's lots of different things um, that people might find more accessible than knitting if, for example, they're not, you know, in a period of their life where learning something new feels like easy for them at the moment. Yeah, but there is also, yeah, there's that, that importance of the sense of mastery and the excitement you can get about, you know, learning something new. And what we know, um, certainly from a compassion-focused therapy perspective, is that that activates our drive. And as humans, sometimes we can be lacking in drive. So that idea of kind of being engaged and learning something can be really, really, really lovely. And um, over the summer, my little boy and I made a few of those friendship bracelets that you kind of weave around a circular thing by mm-hmm. crossing the strings. And it reminded me that I had a summer of of doing that when I was younger and absolutely loved it. And I thought, oh, I should make more of these. But um, how many friendship bracelets does one one girl need? But, um, you know, <laughs> I absolutely, yeah. Similarly to you, I used to like FEMO, FEMO, FIMO, whatever it's called. Yeah. Hamer beads. Like I loved all of that. Yeah. And I think, you know, we do live in a world where actually, you know, a lot of, well, I suppose a lot of what you and I do doesn't have a very tangible <laughs> product. And things like therapy, it's, you know, whether things are going well or, you know, it might not be very linear progress. There might be lots of times where, like, you know, things don't feel like they um, have a very clear path, maybe. Whereas I think that's part of the appeal of a knitting pattern. It is kind of a formula of if you start with this and you do this, you get to this. And I think one of the other things that's been super helpful for me and for lots of other knitters is the idea of having somewhere to make safe mistakes. So it's a kind of part of creativity, I guess, is trying things and failing in a space that feels like that's safe and acceptable, like nothing terrible will happen. And particularly for knitting, unlike if you were, I don't know, painting, um, everything is undoable. (laughs) You can just unravel it. And you've always got, unless you get the scissors out in a dramatic way, what you started with, you've still got your two sticks and a ball of yarn. So that I think has been really helpful in helping me to grow my kind of self-compassion around making mistakes in other areas of my life as well, actually, because I think the assumption for me and all knitters is that you will make mistakes all the time. You know, I'm knitting this traitor sweater. I unraveled the entirety of it, you know, yesterday, all of what I got to and started again because I didn't quite like the fit of the the, uh, roll neck. I love that. Oh, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing how your traitor sweater um, 
develops over time. I was definitely admiring Claudia's knitwear on Traitors. Um, yeah. And obviously people can come out and check that out for themselves. Um, where is your Instagram? What's your Instagram address, please, Mia? So the Instagram is knitting is therapeutic. Yeah. Great. And tell us a little bit about your podcast. What's that called and where can people listen? So the podcast is called Why I Knit. And yeah, it's a podcast where I interview each week a different knitter about why they knit and how it benefits their mental health. So we've got a very diverse range of knitters, some knitwear designers, some people who've contacted me to share amazing stories about what knitting has done for them in their lives. Um, so that, yeah, that's called Why I Knit and it's available on my website, which is therapeuticknitting.org or on any of the major podcast apps. Thank you so much. And you've inspired me. I'm going to get my neighbour <laughs> to teach me how to knit and I'm going to keep you posted. And maybe by the time this podcast episode is out, uh, which is probably going to be around March time, I think, um, I will be able to share some progress of my <laughs> of my knitting um, along with the socials and perhaps in the editing for this episode. Super. Thank you so much for your time. And there's, you certainly left us with a lot of interesting food for thought. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You're so welcome. Thank you again to our guest, Dr. Mia Hobbs. Please do go and follow her over on her Instagram account, which is Knitting is Therapeutic. You can find Maya there. And if you do that, you will see that she has finished her traitor's jumper and it looks marvellous. Now I have to confess my knitting has not got a lot further since we met but I did bump in to a craft group where they were doing knitting in a local library to me and so I popped in and I chatted to the lovely ladies there and if you're watching on video you will be able to see some of the I asked if I could take a photo not of them but of some of their work and they agreed it also gave me a really useful YouTube site to check out which is a lady called Very Pink knits and there should be an image of that on your screen right now they said that there's a really great video on there for how to cast on <laughs> that uses like a plain background so that you can clearly see what you are doing so i am going to still run with that gauntlet and i'm going to try to learn to knit and i will keep you posted please do come and follow me on my socials to see how that journey unfolds i am dr marianne trent everywhere i'd love to know what you think to this episode has it inspired you to get crafty or to bring any of your passions into the therapy room for the clients that you serve do come and let me know either on youtube at dr marianne trent please like and subscribe when you're there and or in my free Facebook group, the Aspiring Psychologist Community with Dr. Marianne Trent. It is my pleasure to bring this work to you. Please do check out the Aspiring Psychologist Collective book and the Clinical Psychologist Collective book and let me know what you need, what you want. Check out the Aspiring Psychologist course for for mental health professionals, which you can do by clicking the link in any of my social media bios. I will look forward to bringing the next episode to you as an MP3 from 6am on Monday, or it's usually available on YouTube the weekend before. I love being part of your world. I love having you be part of mine. Stay kind to yourselves and I'll see you very soon. Take care. 
If you're looking to become a psychologist, then let this be your guide. With this podcast at your side, you'll be on your way to being qualified. It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast with Dr. Marianne Trent. My name is Diakalola Amujo. I am a recent psychology graduate from Ireland. I am also an aspiring clinical psychologist. Dr. Marion's book, The Clinical Psychologist Collective, has been so helpful to me on this journey to becoming a clinical psychologist. As I plan to continue postgraduate studies in the UK, I found it extremely useful that this book provided in-depth information on the UK DeClinSci application process. I enjoyed reading about the experiences of both qualified and trainee clinical psychologists. The various narratives were my favorite part of the book, as everyone's story was different and it provided amazing insights into the clinical psychology journey. I would definitely recommend this book to anyone interested in psychology and aspires to become a clinical psychologist.